0: Hello, welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. This podcast is brought to you by audibletrial.com slash headonhistory. If you're interested in uh, getting an audiobook... Check out that link. You'll be able to download an uh, audiobook for free. Sign up with them. It's a great way of supporting this podcast. Um, I have totally sold out to to Audible. But you got to do what you got to do to make the, the podcast work. Unfortunately, not a lot of the books that I recommend on the podcast are actually found on Audible. But you can still find a lot of other really fantastic books, including some Game of Thrones stuff. I guess I was just talking about Game of Thrones earlier today in the class I was teaching. We were talking about some of the kind of crazy machinations of rulers, and we were talking about how George R. R. Martin draws a lot of it from from actual history, and I was actually surprised. This class doesn't have that many Game of Thrones watchers. I don't know if it's... Generation Z thing, or or what's going on here? But I usually, when I ask, I'm like, hey, how many people watch Game of Thrones? Yeah, at least 80%. And So they they usually know about it or are familiar about it, but the class I taught didn't, so. Anyways, I thought of Game of Thrones, so Audible, there you go. Um, I hope you're enjoying this season so far. If you are, please don't hesitate to stop by the podcast app or iTunes and leave us a review. I got a couple, we got a couple new ones that uh, have just been posted. I'll read some of those reviews and feedback uh, on air either next episode or the episode of that. So today what I want to do is actually continue to talk about the history of Islam in Southeast Asia specifically looking at the Javanese and Malay customs. What I want to do is after we've kind of established the chronology in the last episode, which is to look at uh, the arrival of Islam via merchants, the conversion of rulers, the uh, mer- the arrival of mystics and the establishment of a sort of scholarly class, all happening really in the early medieval era from about the 12th to 13th century on to about the 16th century the, with the early modern period. We've got that chronology down. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the kind of cosmology and practices. Uh, So, even though this is a history podcast, this is going to be a little bit more um, cultural history or anthropological history, if if you will. Um, We're going to dig a little bit deeper uh, because I think this is a really interesting way at looking at the historical process of conversion and, more importantly, how religions that may be so-called foreign actually become indigenous. So, Javanese and and Malay Islam are indigenous religions now, even though it arrived, you know, in the 1600s or so, um, and may have come from Arab merchants. Today that expression of Islam is wholly and totally Malay and Javanese, and I, I think that this offers as a really good case example to look deeper and kind of uh, take this uh, apart a little bit. Um, And and so I think it's important to recognize that Islam in this region is really dynamic and integrative. It incorporates the components of indigenous practices. Let's start with a famous story, because we said mystics, and I think this is a good story. Uh, One of the most famous mystics uh, associated with Islam is a guy named Sheikh Siti janar uh, he is believed to be one of the wali sango the wali sango or the the mystics that i talked about in the last episode these were the saints who brought islam to the region so they become sufi sort of saints known as walis um, and they're venerated Uh, there's this famous king known as King Satmata. He invites the sheikh. He summons him to his palace along with other saints and Sufi mystics. And he questions them about religion. He's trying to understand and see if everyone's on the same page. Well, Sheikh Siti Jenar does something really interesting. He goes, there is no god but Siti Jenar. Now this is a, you know, a kind of a twisting or a changing of the Shahada. You know, the Shahada says there is no God but God and Muhammad is His prophet. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad al-Rasulallah, right? Very famously the first pillar of Islam. Well, Siti Janar says this entirely crazy thing and the other saints are horrified. And so they behead. this sheikh. They chop off his head and they bury him without his head and his head is buried somewhere else. But a few days later they actually find his body whole and smiling and then he disappears into thin air. Now this story is interesting because some components of Al-Halaj in it, uh, those who are are familiar with um, this particular figure, he was a medieval mystic um, and uh, what he does is is a uh Run around going, Ana al-Haq. I am the truth. I am the truth. I, you know, in this way, he kind of blasphemes, if you will. Uh, Al-Halaj talks about, you know, that him and the truth are, are one. Ana al-Haq. Ana al-Haq. And some saw this as a sort of claim to divinity, a, a blaspheming uh, that only God is haqm It's one of his titles, al-Haq. Right. And so they 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 eventually ex- execute another al-Halaj story is actually more complicated than that. They don't actually co- execute him because he says anahaq. It's actually some other reason. We'll talk about that at another episode. Maybe I'll dedicate a whole uh, episode to blasphemy or, or uh, you know, subversive uh, characters in, in Islamic history. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. But the, the sheikh here has some components of al-halaj. But it's also uh, really in indicative of some of the cosmology that is indigenous to the region. The idea that the soul comes from God the idea is that God sends out a soul that soul descends into the human form it is encased in the human form and then when you die the soul returns back to God some will even say that there are multiple parts to the soul that one part of the soul remains on earth um, for a period of a few days and becomes a sort of revenant uh, if not properly placated while the other returns back Uh, to God. And so what we see here in this kind of uh, story is the notion of the transmigration of souls, the soul having a sort of journey that it goes through. Um, And this becomes part of Sheikh Siti Janar's teaching. And we see this as really reflecting the fusion of the indigenous beliefs about spirits and souls with Islam, this kind of Islamic uh, mystical figure of Al Halaj, the two kind of fused together in in this saint, and this is really kind of at the heart of a Kejawin or or Kebatinan that we talked about last week, which was this uh, tradition that fuses Islam with indigenous mystical traditions. The transmigration of the soul being one component of this very important component. Both the Javanese and the Malay believe that the soul goes through some type of journey. And indeed, there's this notion amongst the the Malay in particular that the soul of a person actually is the size of a a thumb um, or a little bit larger than a thumb, and then it's perfectly shaped like you. So it's like a mini Ali inside of you, or, oh, that sounded, more salacious than I had intended it to be. But in in my case, it would be a little Ali in me and the the size of a thumb and he uh, every night when I go to bed, that little Ali flies out of me uh, and wanders the kind of world uh, and the same with you, whoever you are, O oh listener. There's a little you inside of you the size of a thumb that flies out when you're asleep. Uh, and so this kind of transmigration of the soul or this mobile soul is a very important part of the Gejuin tradition. Um, and so disciplining that soul or or developing sort of the spiritual control over that soul is important so in addition to sort of uh, muslim uh, traditional muslim practices like uh, the five pillars you know we have people it's the salat uh, we have um, fasting we have hajj we have zakat we have all all the kind of traditional um, practices you also have uh, other ad- additional practices that the Kedjaween would, would do. And one of them is known as Tapa. It is a form of meditation. Now, meditation exists in Sufi Islam. It's known as Marqaba. Uh, Marqaba, it's a particular type of meditation that involves the control of the breath. Um, and w- we can talk about that in another episode. Or you can go and re-listen to our episode on Sufism from Season 2 and then from Season 1 that talks a little bit about some of these Sufi disciplines of Tasawwuf, but marqaba and 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 Tapa have some commonality with one another, that meditation or the stillness of the soul and the dip- disciplining of the mind are, are, and, and the control of the breath are all important components. But what makes Tapa different from traditional Sufi meditation, and this is where we see the indigenous Javanese practices come in, is that it's also associated with uh, environment. So if you were to do a Tapa or a meditation, you actually do it under a tree. Um, or in some cases, you may be hung from a tree upside down and try to do tapa that way. Another place that you would do tapa is under a small waterfall, because the waterfall connects two rivers together, the river above and the river below. This reflecting the transmigration of souls that we talked about, or the movement of souls from heaven, from God to earth. And so you would meditate at the intersection of that, the waterfall. Um, And then the third kind of uh, tapa is that you would meditate without seeing light for days. You go three, sometimes five days without seeing light. You would be in a dark room replicating a sort of cave-like experience. Another uh, practice is Pasa, fasting. So we see that Saum, which is the traditional Islamic fasting, is very important here. But what happens with this type of fasting is that it is uh, indigenized. It's made local. It is part of the Javanese tradition of fasting that, for example, involves things like avoiding certain salty foods and oily salty foods is a form of fasting now that's not common in islam islam the islamic fasting is sunrise to sunset saum is sunrise to sunset done during the month of ramadan or done outside of the month of ramadan from sunrise to sunset abstaining from food water um, and sexual activity as well as well as other things like smoking etc But Pasa is more complicated than that. So Pasa can involve things abstaining from certain types of food. And the types of food you abstain from have kind of spiritual meaning and components to them. But Pasa can also be done as a traditionally Muslim form of fasting. Sunrise to sunset, abstaining from food and water. And it is done uh, generally Mondays and Thursdays. I think the um, kind of... um, typical prototypical or the the most uh, perfect example of the fusion of uh, indigenous Javanese practices with Islam is the Slamatan. The Slamatan is a particular type of feast that is done. And this feast is usually done uh, in small villages to celebrate certain Islamic holidays as well as the birth of individuals, uh, the circumcision of, children, of young boys, as well as also uh, to uh, celebrate the accomplishment of something. So it's kind of a, a fusion of, of, uh, of a social event with a religious event and they kind of are fused together. And what happens is that the person who is putting on the Slamatan will send out a messenger. And this messenger is generally a small child. And a small child arrives uh, right before the meal is served, roughly about 15 minutes before the meal and goes, hey, there, you have been called to a Slamatan. And everyone who's been called will drop whatever it is they're doing and go to the festival. Now, accordingly, the festival's probably preset, So people, it's not like you just, you, know, you can sneak up on someone with a slamat, like, Shh, bam, come to a festival. More than likely, what, what the case was, people would be like, look, two Thursdays from now, I'm going to do a slamat. And then on that set, Second Thursday, they show up with uh, you know um, this this messenger. The, the everyone sits on a mat on the floor, and it's generally a long communal mat that brings all these neighbors together. And it's generally your neighbors that you invite over for this. They are while you sit at this uh, mat, a speech is made, and the host will give a short speech to tell them why he is called this feast um, apologize for any kind of shortcomings i apologize for calling you last minute i apologize that the food is this or whatnot he also explains what food will be served because there's a sort of symbolism that goes into the food then uh, while he's giving this sort of speech uh, everyone responds to him they, they follow along the speeches it's a very active participation ah yes yes okay oh yes and then they call in a kia now we talked about a kia last week the the kia is a sort of a ritual expert in javanese culture he's a person that is at the intersection of indigenous Javanese practices and Islam and we see this here the kia will then recite a series of prayers generally Islamic prayers. These can be the surah Al-Fatiha, the, the, the first surah of the Quran that starts, in you know, Alhamdulillah, right? And as he recites these prayers, everyone says, Amin. So this is a sort of call and response type prayer that we see happening. Now it doesn't have to be verses from the Quran. it can also be extra uh, extraponneous prayer, it can be impromptu prayer, it can be a sort of uh, a chant, but they're generally Islamic in nature. After the prayer is done and everyone does the kind of call and response, everyone receives a banana leaf and on the banana leaf are the special foods. Generally this is really high-end food. Uh, this is food that has all sorts of symbolism in it. You receive your banana leaf and you eat a little bit of it. You don't eat all of it, you just eat a little bit of it, and then you take the rest home and you finish it at home. You're actually not supposed to spend a long time there. The entire process generally takes about 20 minutes. So you go, you thank the host, you take a little bit of the food, oh this is good, and then you take your banana leaf home and you finish it with your family at home. So it's a very interesting kind of feast. The host himself doesn't eat, the host himself doesn't also serve, someone else will serve the food. Um, But he is the one who has prepare had the food prepared him and his family and he's the one who is as called the festival this festival fuses the com, the the kind of different traditions you have these very clear indigenous practices this meal uh the banana leaf uh the called call and call prayer the uh, communal eating all of this along with islamic components a ritual doctor akia who recites prayers uh, done made perhaps on an islamic festival and so on and so forth there is an, another fe- uh, uh, festival amongst the Javanese practices that uh, is uh, m- more clearly indigenous and contrasts with some, uh, some is- with some of the Islamic authorities over the years. Uh, and this is uh, associated with a particular mountain known as Mount Kemukas. And uh, Mount Kemukas is supposed to be a sacred shrine. And this sacred shrine is the shrine of Pengaran Samdoru, who ran away with his stepmother, Nia Antroulan. He ran away with her, and they had sex at this mountain. And this mountain uh, is supposed to be where they got caught, or where they died, and where they had sex. And what happens is that you, if you were seeking to get this blessing, you would go up onto this mountain. You would go onto this mountain, and uh, you would try to have... Facts illicit sex specifically. So you would have sex with a stranger. But it's not just random hooking up. You would have sex and then commit to that person that you would have sex with them every 30 days or so, seven times, for almost a year. And by completing the ritual, you then get the blessings of Pengara Samdoro. So this is a continuation of what is indi- uh, clearly an in indigenous practice. And while there is clear tensions with uh, traditional Islamic authorities like the ulama and etc. Uh, the average Javanese may participate in this, even if they themselves are Muslim. And this kind of, I think, reflects some uh, of of the ways in which Javanese sexual mores, in particular, continued um, even with the coming of Islam. Now, while those of you who have listened to season one and two of this podcast know that most of Islamic history, Islam is a... I would say probably a sex-positive religion. Uh, It's a little bit more comfortable with sexuality than, than say, medieval Christianity is. It's more comfortable with sexual pleasure. I mean, we have uh, authors, very famous Arabic authors, writing about the female orgasm um in you know the 11th century and how important the female orgasm was for female pleasure that you know sex was not just for procreation but still the idea of, of kind of a illicit sexual affair done for bringing luck that's clearly a javanese practice but one that continues indicating uh, that local practices didn't often face any type of strong central uh, restriction and control but rather that the conversion that we talked about last episode was a slow gradual gradual process that involves taking the parts of Islam that fit within Javanese culture and then keep and kind of fusing them together. So even this kind of this this Javanese practice that, that is clearly pre-Islamic continues because there isn't this kind of centralization of, of, of Islam. Even though scholarly knowledge is certainly centralized or officiated by the state, there isn't a sort of mass force conversion in any way, shape, or form. Now this also raises the question of the role of women. Here we have a female kind of saint or a female shrine, the stepmother um, and women uh, really held on to their roles as healers in Javanese society and interpreters of dreams. Now while the Kiyah were mostly Muslim, or mostly Muslim men, that is they would get some form of formalized training as well as receive an oral tradition um, They uh, women st- couldn't pr- act as Kiyahs, but they usually were helpers and they could continue to be herb doctors and healers and interpreters of dreams. So you have a much more uh, gender egalitarian society in in the Javanese world in particular. But women also uh, rep- became uh associated with the supernatural in other ways particularly in the form of of ghosts one of the most famous ghosts out of the kind of javanese tradition is a is a female spirit known as weiwei gombel and this is a a ghost that is depicted with long pendulous breasts and and vampire fangs and she was supposed to be an actual woman who loved her husband dearly but was unable to produce an, a a child for her husband and so her husband had an affair and cheated on her and so what she did is the uh, rational decision of killing her husband <laughs> so she killed her husband um, but the mob, a mob turned on her and, and and drove her out of society and so being ostracized she ended up committing suicide and killing herself and the spirit of her continues she's actually associated with trees she perches in trees and kidnaps children. So the story being, children, don't go out at night or Wewe gumble will get you. Now, the interesting thing is, even though she's kind of a vampiric spirit and she kidnaps trees in the same way that, the, for example, the Lilitu uh, emerge in kind of Sumerian mythology, she doesn't actually harm the children. It seems like she takes neglected children as a sort of uh, kooky grandmother. She kidnaps them and then she keeps them safe up in her, in, in her tree. This actually is related very closely with Malay notions as well. Um, The Malay spirits uh, also are associated with women. I think this is a really great kind of segue into Malay culture and particularly looking at some of the Malay practices and how they actually intersect and overlap with the the Javanese that we've talked about. So in, in the Malay kind of ghost tradition, there is a spirit known as the Pontianak. Which is actually a baby that dies at, at pregnancy or, or is stillborn, um, and the baby uh, spirit, the ghost of that baby, turns into a, a woman, uh, and this woman is a as, ha, as a hunter. She haunts children and she haunts men in particular. But you can tame her if you drive a nail into the hole in her neck. Apparently, she has a hole in the neck. And you drive the nail in it, you tame her and you have control over her. Another kind of female spirit is Lang Suyar, who's actually the mother that dies as a result of uh, her child dying. Supposedly, she was a famous uh, woman, a very beautiful woman who heard that her baby died in pregnancy and drove her insane and she literally flew into the tree with a screech and she's depicted as having long hair long nails a green robe uh, and she drinks the blood of baby boys but you can also control and tame her. You cut her nails and your hair. There's also ways of kind of preventing uh, a uh, lang Suyar from developing. If a woman dies in child Uh, birth or dies from the grief of the loss of a child, you would put beads in her mouth and eggs under her arms and pins in her hands. Uh, The beads would prevent her from shrieking and the eggs would prevent her from flapping her wings and the pins would uh, prevent her from closing her her hands. So we have interesting kind of the role of the feminine here is very interesting here. It's associated with power. It's associated with the supernatural. It's also associated uh, with with ghosts as well, dangerous ghosts. And uh, the women in the Malay culture in particular, their relationship to Islam is interesting is because women perform the role uh, in two ways particularly. One, as storytellers. Uh, Women are the primary storytellers of the folk traditions of the Malay. And the folk traditions of the Malay combine the Indian epic of the Mahabharata, uh, combine the the story of of Krishna uh, along with Islamic stories, Buddhist stories in indigenous malay stories and these stories are often told in the form of poems and songs uh, quite famously the oud and the tabla both uh, coming over from india from the Muslim world, uh, make their way into the Malay Peninsula and and become a part of the storytelling legend. So as these female storytellers would go from village to village and sing their poems that involved epics and romantic tales of, of princes uh, in Indian stories, Hindu stories, Buddhist stories, and Muslim stories. But they also told fo- indigenous folk stories that involved animals, and these animals had sort of lessons to them. Uh, one of them is the story of the mouse deer and the crocodile, and we're going to talk about that right now. So the mouse deer was the wisest and cleverest of all the animals, and one day he set out and he was very thirsty, and he happened upon a river, and he drank deeply from that river. But then he hungered, and he searched, and he searched, until he found a delicious looking fruit. But it was on the other side of the river bank, and the river was deep and swift he then saw his cousin nearby the crocodile the crocodile was sunbathing in the warm sunlight so he went up to his cousin crocodile and he said cousin cousin i have a great message from you for from a great message for you from king solomon eager to hear the news crocodile perked up and he said oh well, what is this news and he says look i'll i'll tell you this news but you got to gather everyone around first so crocodile went out and got, gathered all the other crocodiles and he said and okay we're all here what does king solomon have to say for us? he said guess what king solomon says that he wants to give each and every one of you a gift but i have to count you so that I know how much gift that he needs to give you. So in order to do that, I want you to line up from that bank of the river to this bank of the river. Make a nicely neat row and so the crocodile being a good cousin and very eager to get the gift of solomon they created a row of crocodiles stretching back from one riverbank to the other and the mouse deer picked up a stick and he hopped onto the backs of the crocodile and hopping from crocodile from one to the next he tapped each one on the head one two three i tap you on the head and when he reached the other side he shouted gleefully That he had tricked Cousin Crocodile, and that he was just here for the fruit. And this angered Crocodile deeply, and that anger still burns strong to this day. And it's why the Crocodile is so angry. Well, F that mouse dear. For being an asshole but this story is very interesting you see here the combination of sort of indigenous animals as being clever and having anthropomorphic characteristics but you also see the appearance of king solomon right from the islamic tradition suleiman the wise king and master of the jinn and the dealing of the crocodile, here an angry animal, becomes not just a story that women tell, but is also the function that some women perform. Uh, This is done predominantly with the pawang. The pawang are ritual doctors, if you will, they are herbalists and uh, shamans of sorts. They can be women, or they can be men, so this is how women have access to uh, spiritual authority and power, and the pawang in particular are associated with the Uh, they have the power to uh, control wind and water and rain. They can summon rains. They can send them away. Uh, they find and locate uh, objects and hidden and stolen objects. And they also deal with the Beijing, which are a series of kind of ghosts, like we talked about, uh, earlier ghosts that deal with uh, that emerge out of of death and they're kind of hungry spirits like the uh, Pontianak or or the Langsuyar. Those are the type of pajangs. but there are other types as well. They also are associated with with dealing and taming animals like the crocodile so if you were to go out and you don't want to be eaten by a crocodile you would hire a Powang, you would seek out a Powang to write you a charm or work a, a, a charm on your behalf the pawang um, would then be able to control give you some type of amulet that would keep you safe from say crocodile so here women play the role of both the storyteller the passing on of the knowledge of why crocodile is angry or why the story of epic princes and whatnot, as well as the story of, uh, as well as, also as the role of ritual doctors, of dealing with the kind of um, consequences uh, that are articulated in the story. Now, the pawang also has a, a partner, if you will, or a, uh, another figure that is associated with him. If the pawang deals with weather and animals, then there is the Bomo. The Bomo is uh, related much more with herbs, and they work a sort of Arabo-Malay medicine. What we see is that in Malay medicine, it's believed that all humans are made out of a balance of elements. This is very similar to the Galenic model uh, that the Arabs adopted from the Greeks. Uh, specifically the notion of the humors, that everyone has a balance of the humors and illnesses are caused by uh, an imbalance of those humors. So fusing Arabic medicine, uh, Greco-Arabic medicine specifically known as Yunani with the Malay traditions of herbs and elements to kind of create a healing practice Um, and the Bomo again could be male or female, one of the more famous kind of uh, healing that they do is they use river water, which they squeeze a lemon into, and they recite Quranic prayers over them, and the person would bathe themselves in that, and it would cleanse them and balance them. They also use Zamzam water, um, and they also have a strong connection with a group of spirits known as the Orang Bunyan. The Orang Bunyan are the spirits of the of the woods and they are described as anthropomorphic looking like humans but gorgeous and beautiful and they're dressed in traditional malay uh, outfits and armor, and they're a secretive, invisible people that uh, don't exist. And Weirdly enough, nowadays, they've been associated with uh, the elves uh, for some reason. So there's a lot of kind of, if you look at the the Orang Bunyan, there's attempts to kind of, probably as a result of European colonialism and the rise of kind of global, you know, uh, movie industries and whatnot, uh, trying to associate them with high fantasy. And so a lot of the depictions of the Orang Bunyan nowadays involve them having, uh, you know, pointed ears, and long blonde hair, whereas traditionally they looked like the Malay, and they were beautiful Malay, beautiful humans, and magical humans, and supernatural humans. They were associated in some ways with the jinn. They had their own tribes, they had their own uh, st- social structures, they had their own cities, but they were called the invisible people. They were invisible to us. Uh, we now see them as elves. I don't think elves is the accurate way of, of kind of talking about them, but you know, who knows, people, traditions change and grow. But traditionally, so the Bomo would enlist the aid of the Orang Bunyan because the Bomo had an inherent ability to uh, see them, a sort of supernatural uh, second sight. So we see here the kind of fusion again of Islamic beliefs with indigenous Javanese beliefs. The Bomo uh, mixes uh, Greco-Arabic medicine of Yunani with Malay medicine to kind of emer- to create its own unique healing practice Lemon baths with Quranic water, Zamzam water, which is water from from Mecca, um, a connection with these invisible spirits, the Orang Bunyan, similar to the Jinn. They've kind of run into a little bit of controversy in the contemporary world, uh, particularly around um, the. Uh, recent incident, When well, i say recent, you know, 2014, of Flight MH370, which was the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, um, that disappeared. And there was a uh, Beaumont who actually tried to uh, find it. His name was Ibrahim Matzin, and he claimed to be this kind of super-powerful, a bon and he showed up to the Kuala Lumpur airport, and uh, he—you found he had the with him these kind of special magical bamboo binoculars, which he would look used to sa- find the Malaysia Airlines flight 370, and he claimed that the airplane had dis- it was frozen in air. Um, between the philippines and the south china sea and uh, hidden by the orang bunyan these kind of jinn this supernatural race Um, they had frozen the airplane in air um, and that they he had to work his healing in order to uh, save the airplane Um, and so the next day Uh, He brought him and his assistants brought Zamzam water from Mecca, and they had a Surah Yasin book that they recited. Surah Yasin is one of the. Uh, surahs of the Quran that is associated in a lot of the kind of mystical traditions of Islam with healing abilities and having miraculous abilities. People try to listen to Surah Yasin, you know, while, and when they're dying or they were when they're really ill. Um, he also brought with him two coconuts that he would knock together with them, um, and he would shout ta- the takbir, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, and then he had a magic carpet, a carpet that he rolled out, um, and this became kind of a, a big controversy. People kind of mocked him for internationally mocked him as a as a fraud and a huckster and a, and a kind of charlatan and you know uh believing in superstitious stuff. But I think it's actually kind of a, an interesting incident. It shows, again, how these practices that are really ancient and this moment of conversion that happened in the medieval and the early modern era hundreds of years ago, how it distilled into this tradition of, of the Kejaween because the Bomo is both uh, found in Malaysia and in uh, the Javanese tradition. It's where the two intersect, actually, with one another. So the Kejuween is part of this kind of Kejuween practice that endures to this day. So it's a distillation of that history. In some ways, you can argue that that incident, while some people might view it as weird, is a fascinating, fantastic historical evidence or trace of this older history. It helps us see this process that, that existed um, you know, in in this Southeast Asia world, this process of, of Islam becoming indigenous and interacting with local tradition and absorbing certain cosmologies and practices, and how that continues until this day. Why there would be this guy named Ibrahim Mazin who would be a Bomo, in 2014. Um, that dynamic relationship, the dialogical relationship between the religion and the folk practices, I think, is fascinating. And so for me, I saw that in evidence as a sort of a trace, a witness, of of that historical moment, preserved uh, and distilled in this kind of contemporary. Uh, moment, the bomo, uh, also known as sometimes the dukun, also were associated with a spirit. Uh, associated not just with healing practices, but sometimes associated with with uh, folk magic, uh, and they were associated with certain ghosts. Like you would uh, have certain spirits that they would control, and one of the spirits that they controlled was a, uh, a homunculus spirit, a small. Uh, the size of a human, a human but shrunk down, that they could send out against someone uh, to make them ill. For example, a very f- famous ritual involves uh, taking a sort of uh, a rusty bowl and scratching up the rusty bowl uh, with nails and then placing this in a circle and asking the, this ghost to go and make those nails and the rust uh, appear in the body of someone. So infecting them with literal metals. And then when that would happen to you, this Bomo, you know, I would say an unsavory Bomo. Not all Bomo practice magic. Most of the Bomo are doing this kind of indigenous healing practice, but some did. And some of these Bomo or the Dukun that would practice this this kind of darker art, then you would go to a Pawang uh, to heal, to kind of deal with the Bajang, to deal with the ghosts that were sent against you. And they would carve for you, do a sort of healing ritual for you, and maybe give you an amulet in order to protect you from it. I think I'm going to end uh, here, but I think this is a really good spot uh, to, to to kind of end the podcast, but also as, as a way of of really distilling everything we've talked about, this individual, the Bomo, the Pawang, the Dukun, whatever you want to call them, really represents in in their life the, the history of Islam in Southeast Asia and how the uh, religion integrated and incorporated local tradition, how it incorporated local practices and beliefs and uh, made Islam uniquely malay and uniquely javanese um, and how that continues even to this day even though you know there's less and less Bumos and, and whatnot um, but i think it's a it's a, these figures really represent that intersection of culture and religion and really the intersection of 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 Islam arriving and the long process that it takes that dynamic process a dialogical process uh, in which uh, Islam becomes localized in some regards. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. It's a really fascinating uh, you know area of study. There's whole experts on it. It's hard to find a lot on the kind of folk practices because most of these traditions are oral. But there are some good books that that you can check out. I would highly recommend. Uh, Stephen Headley's book, Stephen Headley is a a missionary and anthropologist. Uh, He wrote a book from Cosmogony to Exorcism in a Javanese Genesis, The Spilt Seed. It's an Oxford Studies book, really uh, kind of fantastic. It actually looks more at the cosmogony, the kind of co- the new, uh, uh, shadow play uh, specifically that is put on, and how that shadow play reflects the cosmology, the beliefs, the practices, and the rituals of, of the Javanese. So it's actually about a play, I would known as a shadow play, but it, it then dissects the symbolism of the shadow play and looks at its worldview, etc. So it's a fantastic way of looking again. At the, at the way in storytelling and folk practices intersect with one another, as we, we talked about when we mentioned, for example, the female Malay storytellers. Highly recommended, fantastic, fantastic book. Um, if you are interested in in contacting me, you can do so by hitting me up at social media, Instagram, and social and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And you can use the hashtag head-onhistory. I generally check that every, every couple days, um, and I'm always happy to interact with any of my listeners. Anyways, that's all for today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.